0: Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what the show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, Why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, Join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person.
1: Welcome to Breaking News. I'm Matt Ziegler, joined as always by Jack Forehand and Ben Hunt. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, Great gentlemen. To be back. So we've got lots of fun stuff to talk about today. In the zeitgeist, we're talking about the Bitcoin ETF, how to centralize the decentralized at a low, low cost. We've got a tweet of the week about carried interest. Ben, you and Dean Baker seem to have had some interesting discourse on Twitter about this. So we've got lots to dissect about America's favorite tax loophole slash boogeyman. Yep. Jack... You've got a dumb question on soft landings, hard data, and squishy chart inconsistencies. (laughs) I've got a cultish corner on on Martin Luther King, which we're recording this on Martin Luther King Day. And hopefully, this is going to full circle us all back into where we're starting this week on Claudine Gay, plagiarism, and why the problems in academia are actually so much worse than they appear. Jack, why don't you try to explain what just happened with Claudine Gay and let's ask Ben some questions.
2: Yeah. Well, before we get into why the problems are worse than they appear, I, th- I think it's good to start with maybe what plagiarism is because for someone like me outside of academic circles, like I understand, obviously I take Ben's epsilon theory piece, I pasted it to my own site. That's plagiarism, but there's a lot more nuance going on, particularly in the academic world behind the scenes. So Ben, I'm wondering if you could talk first about what plagiarism is and maybe how you would define it.
3: Yeah, sure. So so plagiarism is like the The worst thing you can accuse an academic of, uh, because plagiarism is stealing someone's ideas, right? That's what, that's what plagiarism is. What plagiarism is not, but is, is what it is often in kind of an undergraduate context is copying, copying words. Um, Claudine Gay is not a plagiarist. I mean, I'm writing a long note about this. So I, I, have never met Claudine Gay, but I know Claudine Gay. And what I mean by that is, uh, I finished at Harvard in the government department, what everyone else calls political science in, um, 1991 and she started in 1992. So we, we, we just missed each other. But we had the same dissertation advisor. We had the same approach to political science. We had the same classes. We had the same places. We had the same life. So I, I, I know Claudine Gay. And you know, Claudine Gay is incredibly smart and accomplished. I mean, people who think like she's this DEI creature or, you know, affirmative action product, you just, it's just completely wrong. Right. If, if this is how she had wanted to apply her talents, she would have been a star at meritocratic institutions like Bridgewater or Citadel or, you know, you know, for God's sake, you know, Pershing square, Bill Ackman's Pershing square. I mean, she would have been great. She would have been great. Uh, and, and she was both an utter failure as a university president and her academic work is, um, pedestrian sorry, but it is. Sorry, but it is. And, and it's, you can go through her work and find places where, oh, uh, you, you know, she copied other people's words, didn't copy other people's ideas, but copied other people's words. Things that would be, let's say, problematic if you're an undergrad writing a paper. Um, and she says, oh, you know, I forgot to put quotation marks in. That's bullshit. You know, nobody forgets quotation marks. Don't forget quotation marks. You just don't. It was copying. And the fact is, every dissertation is like that. So all the news now is now Bill Ackman, you know, who was after Claudine Gay for plagiarism and the like. His wife, Neri Oxman, who I've read her dissertation too, right? Her dissertation is crap. (laughs) I'm sorry, it is. And, and it's, but it's also, I mean, she's literally copying from Wikipedia and that's no knock on her. This sounds like I'm criticizing everyone. I mean, go back and look at my dissertation. The only reason my dissertation isn't crap is that I actually included all of the raw data in my dissertation because, you know, whatever you're doing as a grad student, they, they. You're not contributing to knowledge. This is what you have to go through. And there are so many more dissertations being written. And this is true in the natural sciences as well as the social sciences, right? So that you're the, you know, 33rd author on some lab paper, right? That's non-replicable and, you know, p-hacked and all that. stuff. it's all, it's all, um, it's so much worse than plagiarism. Right? If only the problem with academia and the problem with Harvard, if only the problem was that Claudine is some anti Semitic plagiarist who conned her way to the top job. That would be wonderful news because then it just means, okay, purge Claudine Gay and the Claudine Gays out there and we're all fine. No, no, no. Friends, the problem is so much worse than that. The problem is that Claudine Gay is not a plagiarist. The problem is that Claudine Gay is not anti-Semitic. The problem is that all dissertations are crap. All of them are formulaic crap. And uh, what we are now dealing with is the public (laughs) saying, oh, you mean you're just copying words and putting kind of fake copying and pasting old ideas and Wikipedia entries together to get your credential to move on in academia. It is literally old wine in, you know, blended together in somewhat new bottles. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is.
2: That is, that
3: is the state of academia today.
2: So, given that that's the case, now that we have technologies like ChatGPT, whenever we don't like anybody in academia, in academia now, are we just going to start going after this stuff? And there's going to be controversy after controversy after controversy, like going after everybody's dissertation?
3: Absolutely, every German PhD for the last twenty years is going to be plagiar is is going to be shown as plagiarism, seriously. And these are people who are in business, so they have enemies, right? So, I'll I'll just, I'll just state that as a given, right? And, and look, I'm not above doing this either. And what I mean by that is, um, what's his name? The last defense secretary, the one who quit under um, Trump. I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, he's got a PhD from George Washington or something like that. I got a, co- you can get anyone's PhD, right? They're, they're stored. And so I paid the 30 bucks or whatever to get it because I was sure that I was going to find plagiarism. it and the answer is no it's worse than plagiarism i mean it's not plagiarism it's it's 400 pages of quoted and footnoted other people there's not an original idea in the whole thing and that's the issue with neary oxman that's the issue with claudine gay's got a little bit of an original idea in, in her dissertation i like to think i had a little bit of an original idea in my dissertation But the fact of the matter is is that every dissertation is at a minimum 90% formulaic copying of other people's ideas. That's at best. Most dissertations are 99.9% formulaic copying of other people's ideas. A great dissertation is where it's only 90% copying. And that also goes true for every journal article that's published, every lab result that's published. That's okay. That's what academia is. I mean, it's okay, but that is the problem. And then once you realize this, that, oh, that's what it all is. It's all copying of other ideas. There's so much less than meets the eye to academic publishing and research. That's the moment we're in right now. Is this
1: a good weapon? Is this a good weapon against the institutions or a bad weapon? Like, does this undermine the fabric of?
3: So, how- so here's the, here's the topic of my note, right? Please. Is that, was that the, the modern university is the Catholic church in 1517. The modern university is the Catholic church in 1517. It plays the same role in our society. It permeates everything. It is based on learned intermediaries interpreting the truth for you. It is the Catholic Church in 1517. And what happened in 1517, of course, is the Reformation, where Martin Luther comes up and says, hey, you guys, this is bullshit. You're selling indulgences. You're selling a promise, you know, to get out a purgatory free card. This is crap. And when you look at it, the whole thing is just... It's just stupid, and that's the problem we have today. It's just stupid. It's 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 what I like to call in epsilon theory terms is an industrially necessary institution. It's grown too big to be authentic, either authentic in religious virtue in fifteen seventeen or authentic in academic virtue today. It's too big, and so. There's, there's a tearing down that has to happen. There is a wrenching that has to happen. It will absolutely be hijacked by political entrepreneurs, right? Just like it was in 1517, the, the German princes and electors who had a, a beef with the Pope who wanted more power. They were the ones, the first to latch on to Martin Luther's ideas and say, yeah. Yeah, that's awful. What 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 the church is doing? We need a new church. And it's the same thing with Republicans today. Oh, that's awful. That's awful. Yeah, 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 yeah. We gotta we gotta tear that down because it's useful in their struggle for political power. My friends, there's nothing new under the sun, but this is our moment. This is this is the moment we're in. It ain't good, Matt. I mean, not good for. I'll say. You know stability. We fought a lot of wars over the Reformation, really nasty wars, the nastiest wars. And um, but it, but it is what has to happen. There has to be a Reformation, and that's where we are with academia today.
1: Well, speaking of revolutions, let's go to the zeitgeist Bitcoin. You finally have an ETF. So let all that is decentralized be centralized. What sense are you making of this is Ben kick, kick us off. Bitcoin TM officially has its ETF. What's this mean? Huh? No, the
3: spot Bitcoin ETF is Bitcoin TM as I like to call it. So it is the transformation of Bitcoin, which to me was this um, symbol of revolutionary, we're going to change the system, we're going to reform the system um, in all the right ways, impetus. And it's transformed it into just another table at the Wall Street casino. And it's exactly what happened to gold with the introduction of GLD, the gold uh, ETF. And what it does is it changes the meaning of Bitcoin. It changes the meaning from something that is subversive, revolutionary, reforming, all that wonderful stuff. And it changes into, oh, it's an asset right, that I want to analyze for its number-go-up properties, for its diversification. Like gold, it has no cash flows. Like gold, it becomes an insurance policy against central bank error. That is the meaning of gold today. That's it. And that's what the meaning of Bitcoin becomes. And it's, it's sad to me, is personally sad um, because this is how Wall Street is what Wall Street does with all new financial technologies. It swallows them and digests them. And it's in conjunction with government. Government has no interest in banning Bitcoin. It has every interest in swallowing Bitcoin. And that's what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. So now Bitcoin has been transformed from an an instrument of self-sovereignty to just another asset that treasury tracks and you mark off on your income tax statement and, uh, you know, keep your good records about it and woohoo, maybe you'll make, you know, 15% on that asset this year. Well
2: done. It's just sad, but such is of so the world. One, one of my favorite uh, Twitters is Ben versus the Bitcoin. I don't know if maximalist is the right word, but the Bitcoin yeah, proponents sure. Twitter. It's, uh, it's, it's very enjoyable, the back and forth. And, you know, they've been echoing what I heard on, on the podcast I, I listened to that I won't mention the name of. But this idea that basically, if we want to achieve our goal with Bitcoin, we need it to become mainstream first. And so this ETF is actually a good thing for us. Because it's allowed you know we're gonna get mass adoption of Bitcoin now, and even though we don't like Blackrock and we don't like all that stuff, this is gonna get us to our goal. so I'm wondering what do you think about that?
3: There is no mass adoption of Bitcoin. It's mass adoption of uh, you know a three letter symbol that you have in your that references Bitcoin. It's a derivative it you know it has nothing more of you know, I'm own i'm I'm adopting Bitcoin than you know. You're adopting a U.S. Steel foundry. You know, it's just it's just a it's just another casino chip. It's just another casino chip. There's no there's no adoption. There's no affinity for Bitcoin, the revolutionary device. Its affinity for the three or four letter ticker is affinity for the casino chip. <laughs> That's all the affinity is for. It's for making money. It's for making money. Exactly like gold became something that, I you know, this is my, you know, this is the currency of the future when the world collapses, to now this is a position, an exposure that I want to have. And its meaning is, well, if central bankers are screwing up, I think this exposure in my portfolio will go up in price. And it's just, again, it's like the university today is like the church in the middle ages. Everything new, everything old is new again. And if you just stick around long enough, you see all this crap happen all over again. And, and I know it comes across as being the, you know, the grumpy grandpa, but trust me, the only grumpy, the grumpiness about this is what happens when you hold on to the, when you think something is something else, when you fail to call something by its proper name. When you think that, oh, you know, I'm going to start rooting for the end times because I've got my physical goal. There's, there's narrative around this, right? So, so the hodlers become the remnant, which again, is this very powerful old narrative archetype. You're the ones, the true believers, the ones who will hold out for the end times and will ultimately be vindicated. You see this in markets all the time. It's the whole Moas. Mother of all short squeeze people, all the people are hold on to their shares of, you know, Bed, Bath, and Beyond, the Q shares, because, oh, it's, you know, one day we will be vindicated. It's a very self-sustaining narrative and it and it creates a, a very strong community, but it's just a sad community to me. It really is. These are the you become a grumpy grandpa. Because you're hoping for bad times, you're hoping for horrible things to happen so that you, in fact, will be vindicated, and that's a crappy way to live. It's just a crappy way to live.
1: Does this say anything for the rest of the crypto complex? Like, are
3: we just going to see them all become ETFs right now, or what? They, are they uh, all just products? Because, because I mean, Bitcoin's the only one that's not a security, right? That the, the SEC says is not a security. I, I mean, I actually think all the other the rest of crypto is much more authentic. Right? It's they're shit coins. And you should wear that badge proudly. Right? It's just you're you're playing the game. You're playing a game. And that, that to me that's so much healthier. So much healthier than thinking, oh no, I'm going to be you know, retreat into my cave Gollum like with, you know, the, 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 the one ring of power that one day, you know, when the world collapses, I will emerge and be, you know, the Duke of West Hortford or whatever, because I've got my Bitcoin. You know, it's just, I admire just the crypto guys a lot more. Cause it's just like, you know, we're just playing, we're playing a game. It makes me think of
1: it's like you go to the casino and it's like oh I'm an adult I play poker and blackjack and I make fun of the kids with the Pokemon cards and pogs or something. Like at the end of the day, the kids are having more fun. Kids
0: are are having having more more fun. fun.
3: Kids (laughs) are having more fun and and you know the I'll call it kind of NFTs and you know putting objects on the blockchain on the Bitcoin blockchain. Man, that's where the future is. Because you're, you're not treating it as, you're not being so freaking precious about it and clinging to this story of, oh, this is the monetary system of the future. I'm sorry, friends, that ship has sailed. The ship has sailed, right? Treasury sees every transaction you do in Bitcoin, everything, and it's adopted by people who want the three or four letter ticker in their portfolio for number go up. Yeah. Congrats. So when you're
1: selling, that's what I think, Jack. So when you're celebrating all of those uh, profits, if you're a hedge fund, let's, let's jump into the tweet of the week. Let's talk about (laughs) carried interest. Carried
3: interest and the carried interest tax deduction. Absolutely. (laughs) Let's do that.
1: Our favorite boogeyman. Uh, I think we're going to lead with Jack. Let's get that that lead tweet that spawned this, this back and forth and why don't you kick us off, Jack?
2: Yeah. So this is from Dean Baker, who I actually don't know who Dean Baker is, but uh, this, this is the person you originally commented on, on Twitter. Um, and he was getting into this and, you know, people love, first of all, like the carried interest thing, like if there's anything that's probably more politically popular to go after, I'm not sure what it is because everybody hates the carried oh, interest I'll, thing.
3: I'll, 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 t- I'll tell you what it is, but, but
2: go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can give me that in a second, but, but yeah. So, so the idea of like, he was saying, I'll read the tweet from Dean Baker. He said, since some folks were asking about the carried interest deduction and how much we will give big Bill Ackman through it, I'll give it a brief explanation and then some calculations. And so he went into a lot of stuff after that, which we we won't get into, but, uh, you responded and said, this is just drivel. There's not a long, short hedge fund manager in the country who takes the carried interest deduction. Not since, not since Jim Simons and crew lost the IRS case in 2021. So maybe a good starting point is if you could just explain what the carried is, the interest deduction actually is.
3: Sure. And before I do that, I'll tell you what carry is, what carried interest is, right? So a lot of private funds, you have two ways of making money. The first is you charge a management fee. So that's just a a flat fee that you charge to pay the bills. So the... And that, that fee varies depending on how special you are and how expensive your work is, you know, what, what, how much it costs to keep the lights on for whatever private fund. And a private fund can, a venture capital fund that invests in startup companies. That's a private fund. A, um, a, com- a private fund could invest in, uh, private real estate. Private fund could, you know, private equity. Is classic. And all of the different flavors of private equity, investing in private companies, meaning they don't trade on any stock exchange, those are private funds. Hedge funds, companies that for the most part invest in public securities, so things that anyone could invest in, a hedge fund invests in them also, but they are set up as a private fund because they say, We've got some special idea. We've got a special sauce, right? So that even though we're investing in the same stuff that you can, we're going to do so much better and we're going to make these consistent profits. And what we're going to charge you to invest in our hedge funds called being a limited partner. We, the hedge fund managers, we're the general partner and you, the investor in our hedge fund, you're the limited partner limited in that you don't control what's happening. You just give us the money and we, the general partner, we're going to charge you for our efforts and our time, but you're going to get just as much return on this, on the fund as, as we do as, as being investors in the fund. All the, all the returns in the fund go peri pursue, meaning according to your investment size in the partnership. So. Two things you charge for. One, your management fee. It could be anywhere from, you know, um, fifty basis points, one half of one percent, to yeah, you know, I mentioned Jim Simons and uh Renaissance Technologies before. Gosh, I think he charges like three and a half, four percent management fee. So he just gets you as the the, the private fund, you just get that off the top every year. You get 4% of the limited partners investment for, like say, to keep the lights on. A lot of hedge funds charge way too much in these management fees uh, because they become, we call them asset accumulators, right? They just try to raise a really big fund, just try to match the market so that people don't redeem. And then, you know, charge those management fees every year. They actually try to make money on the management fees. So that's a whole nother thing. Are you charging too much for management fees? Are you paying too much for management fees? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the other thing that private funds use to make money. And that's carried interest. Carried interest is a share of the profits. Carried interest is a share of the profits. and. Often is over some hurdle. Like, all right, let's say we're up the your your private fund, let's say you're up 10% this year. Gross. Well, and let's say you charge a 2% management fee. Well, now we got to take that 2% off. So now for the limited partner, for the investor, you're only up 8%. And a lot of them will have some sort of hurdle rate, like, um, what's the just the 90-day interest rate. Let's call that 5%. So the what you charge a share of the profits on is your performance after management fees and expenses above a hurdle, like 5%. So in that example I just gave you, you made 10% this year. Yeah, Great. Okay, but now we've got to subtract 2% for the management fees. We're down to 8%. And look, the truth is, if you had just invested in treasuries, you could have made 5% this year. So really the profits that we, the private fund manager made is 3%. 3% is the the, the true net performance over the hurdle. And now we're going to charge you a percentage of those profits. So it's often something like maybe it's 10% of the profits, 15%, 20%. Let's say we charge you 20% of the profits. That's our carried interest. So in this case, it would be 20% of 3% or six tenths of 1%, 60 basis points. So when all is said and done, you investor, you started at 10, you got cut down to eight for the management fee. And now you're actually going to get 7.4% because we're going to take another 60 basis points as our profits, our carried interest. All right, so that's what carried interest is. And honestly, let's say you made 20% in a given year and you don't have a hurdle rate. Your, Your hurdle is just zero. If you make a profit, you're going to get paid on that. So 20% gross, take off 2% for management fees. That's 18% left. I only get 20% of that. That's 3.6%. Right? So ultimately, the investor is going to get whatever that is, 14.4% in total back from a 20% year, you, the investment manager are going to get 5.6%. Just for running the fund, 2% in management fee and 3.6% for your share, your carried interest. This is why hedge funds and private funds scale. It's why there's no better business in the world for making money than running a private fund with carried interest. Because all you need is one good year, God forbid a couple of big years, and that's how you make the big bucks. But it gets better. And the better is what we have written into the tax code, which is this carried interest deduction. So what is that? Well, in our tax code, we give preferential treatment to long-term investment returns. We have a separate tax rate for what are called capital gains, different from what we would call ordinary income. It's going to be very familiar to most people listening to this, but maybe not to some. And it's really crucial. Now, the reason we have different tax rates, we have lower tax rates for long term capital gains, is that in the same way we give tax breaks for home ownership, we give tax breaks for these long term investments because we want to encourage that in our tax code. We want to encourage people to own a home. So we have a mortgage interest deduction. And we want to encourage people to make investments with their money for a long term. So we have a lower interest rate. We have your, you're charged less on your profits from a long-term investment. The carried interest deduction is saying you, the manager of the private fund, you should be treated as getting that long-term capital gains, lower interest rate. If the investment, the underlying investment was itself a long-term investment. You see, you see what we're talking about here, Jack? I mean, it's right. So, so there's carried interest, which is the way you make a fortune in running a private fund. If you can get it to scale and you can have a year or two, that's how you make your money or the, the big money and two. We have embedded in the tax code. We want to reward long-term investment, and the carried interest deduction treats the private fund managers as if their investment had been there for a long time. If the underlying profits of the invest of the private fund had been held for a long
2: time, so they're getting long-term gains treatment, even though it's not their money. Effectively, is that does that explain exactly.
3: It right? exactly? Okay, there you go. All right. There you yeah, that Thank you, Jack. That boils it way down, right? That 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 really that really hits it there. So, the carried interest deduction is bullshit for exactly the same for exactly the reason you just described, Jack. You are getting a preferential tax treatment for your income from someone else's investment. A hundred percent. It is insane that this tax deduction still exists. I get long-term capital gains, and I've got some ideas for making that system better, but there's no reason at all that the carried interest deduction should exist, and that's what Dean Baker, who is a good lefty soldier, you know, he's for some, you know, DNC-affiliated think tank. He's their chief economist, and so he's angry at Bill Ackman right? Because Bill Ackman is now the darling of the right. And so he wants to go after Bill Ackman for all the money that we have given him, those are Dean Baker's words, by having the advantage of the carried interest tax deduction. But here's the thing. Bill Ackman's main business right is a long short hedge fund it's a private fund um i am confident in saying there 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 are still strategies that exist to try to get your manager's take characterizes long-term gains most of those strategy most of those most of how you do it has gone away uh, i mentioned jim simons and his rent tech group Right, so Jim Simons or do, they do short-term trading, but they put it in a vehicle that made it look like it was long-term. And what happened was the IRS back in two thousand one won the court case saying, "Now, that's that's crazy. You have to pay us now eight billion dollars in tax and penalties." Almost all of these strategies to try to characterize short-term gains as long-term capital gains have been, are done and are, and are finished. You can't, anything you're short can't be treated as a long-term gain. Even if you hold that short position for years and years, sorry, it doesn't count. The, in our tax code now, if you're the time limit for long-term capital gains treatment is now three years if you're up for carried interest, three years. For just ordinary long-term capital gains, tax treatment is one year. If you're a hedge fund manager or a private equity fund manager, it's three years. There's no hedge fund manager in the world who holds long positions for three years. There's just not. And there's a very good reason why there's not because there's no edge in that. If you're holding a public market. If you're owning a share of stock that anybody could buy for three years, I can do that as an investor and not pay you management fees or carry or entry, anything I can do that. There's nothing special. There's no edge in owning a public security for that long, a period of time. So nobody does it because nobody invests with you to do that. Nobody. So. Hedge fund managers, do they get carried interest? Oh yeah. You know, it's while we do what we do. It's treated as ordinary income. It does not get this preferential tax treatment. The people who get the preferential tax treatment because they do hold positions for more than three years are private equity managers. Not hedge fund managers like Bill Ackman, but private equity managers like all the Silicon Valley guys who donate to dem- prep prim- mostly to democratic po- politicians, and this gets back to your original question,, you know why do why does this persist? Well, this was about to go away. the carried interest um tax deduction, but Christian cinema, the then Democrat senator, you know. Had to get come on board to get the um inflation reduction act quote unquote to pass. She said, Nope, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it if, 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 if we're, if we're nuking the carried interest deduction. There's not a hedge fund manager in the world who cares about the carried interest deduction because we can't use it. Can't use it. Every private equity manager in the world cares deeply about the carried interest deduction. And it's why it persists today, not because, oh, it's those darn Republicans, but because, and Kristen Cinema was just kind of like the, the front person, right? For this, neither political party wants to get rid of the carried interest deduction because both political parties get enormous contributions from private equity managers. And the Democrats can rail about, oh, those evil hedge fund managers getting their carried interest deduction when they know full well they don't actually get the carried interest deduction. And they know full well that, you know, the Democratic Party could have gotten rid of it, but they. But they but they didn't. And you ask what it's like, Jack, is there anything else that compares to the political railing about the carried interest deduction? Yeah, there is. The security on the southern border. So today, right now, we could get a bill passed and the White House would sign it that would get more money and enforcement and everything else on the southern border. And what we... Was you heard yesterday from Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, is, not we're not going to get it done because they want it to remain as a political issue through the November elections, just like the Democrats want carried interests to remain as something they can rail about for every future election. Yeah, this is why we can't have nice things, and this is why terrible things persist, like the ridiculous situation and our border with Mexico, the ridiculous situation of carried interest is because neither political party really has an incentive to do a damn thing about it.
2: Yeah, I hate this. One of the things I hate about this tweet, and you know, this is something we see so much these days, which is we take something that's very, like would be popular with people, like being against the carried interest deduction, being against billionaires and Bill Ackman. We we start with that, and then we say a bunch of stuff that's just factually incorrect. And so people end up believing all this stuff, because we have this popular opinion that we start with and, and then the rest of it just doesn't make sense. And people don't bother, you know, to, to spend the time to research it. And so I, I think it's great that you did what you did here because it, it helps to bring the truth out about some of this stuff, even though maybe well, these are not popular things that shouldn't exist.
3: And is this so It's really hard because I don't want to be in a position of defending freaking Bill Ackman. <laughs> right. And, and trust me, if there's any human being <laughs> in the world who has done cockamamie schemes to try to get his carried interest characterized as long-term gains, I am sure it's Bill freaking Ackman, right? So this is not a defense of him. But, but what it is, is that we live in a world where we put these cartoon figures and we attach them to terrible policies, Like a carried interest deduction, it should go away. It should be eliminated. And yet both political parties keep it because they get the campaign contributions and because they can attach their little cartoon figure as a, as an electoral issue, right? The Democrats can attach their little cartoon figure of Bill Ackman on this. The Republicans can attach the little cartoon figure of, you know, Joe Biden on, you know, the Mexican border security and use it as a political issue and not do a damn thing about it.
1: So straight from the land of cartoons, let's talk about some chart crimes and other things here. Jack, you've got a dumb question for us.
2: Yeah, you know, this is, I've kind of been been one of these, like, I've tried to, when we had inflation, I tried to go back and research inflation in the past. And one of the things you find out when you research inflation in the past is what they call, I guess, the last mile is very, very difficult. So we've got, I mean, I, I don't know what inflation is because they measure it in so many different ways, but let's say we've got inflation in the threes right now. Getting from the threes to two can be a very big challenge. And it can, a lot of, in a lot of cases, be uglier than, than the big drop was. So, so that was sort of my starting position. But then as I've sort of seen data come in, maybe it was a little bit weaker than I thought, you know, the economy, like the labor market is held up. I I tend to find myself like drinking the sweet uh, Jerome Powell Kool-Aid a little bit and thinking maybe I'm wrong. Maybe a soft landing is possible here. You know, maybe we're not, maybe inflation is not going to stay, you know, high for a lot longer. Maybe we're not going to have a huge recession. Maybe they can thread the needle down the middle here. And I know that's probably wrong, but I find myself thinking it. And so I thought maybe you've been tweeting a lot about this recently. So I thought this was maybe an opportunity to ask you, you know, do you think that's possible? And do do you think a soft landing could happen here? I mean, I know you're not thinking that's the the most logical outcome, but do you think that's possible here? Or do you think that's something that, I mean, the market's pricing it in is a very high probability. Um, Do do you think it could happen?
3: Um, Could it happen? And by soft landing, we mean an economic slowdown. That's sufficient to bring, continue bringing inflation rates down without being a hard landing, which is a nasty recession where, you know, asset prices collapse and, you know, whole people are laid off and, you know, in the, and we have real job declines, right? So that's the difference, right? That's, or that's there's a hard landing and a soft landing. We're talking about how. Bumpy is it in the economy? Hard landing is like you basically crash the plane. Soft landing is it's bumpy, but you land it, meaning you bring economic, aggregate economic, you know, demand down. You slow the economy down to bring inflation down. None of that is happening. There's no, there's no, there's no hard landing for sure. There's also no soft landing jobs are starting to go back up again. Wage growth is well over 4%. Um, we're going to get more fiscal stimulus. We're going to get another tax cut, you know, over the next few weeks. right? There's no, we mentioned earlier the inflation reduction act, right? It's a massive spending bill The the bipartisan. You know, infrastructure act, massive spending, right? There's no landing, right? That it's just take off. I, I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not slowing the economy down at all. Now, Jack, does it mean that, that we can't have a, what feels kind of recession-y? Does it mean that we can have a terrible thing happen? No, of course, of course it could happen. But economic growth today, real economic growth, on top of the inflation rate, is you know, three or four percent. That's not a slowdown. Right. Wait, our our unemployment rate is three point something percent. Job growth is going up, wages are going up by more than four percent real economic growth is three four percent something like that slow down you know i'm I'm like the meme of I forget he was the, the the coach saying playoffs right you know slow down recession what 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 are you talking about so and then you look at you know try I mean look at CPI, year-over-year CPI, it, it bottomed last June. Inflation's no longer, the inflation rate is no longer decline, declining. It, has, it stopped declining six months ago. And yet, I get it, right? The White House wants you to think that the inflation fight is over, mission accomplished, because they've got an election to win. Wall Street wants you to believe that the inflation flight fight is over, mission accomplished, because they want interest rates to come down. They want cheaper money. So those are the stories, and that's what we're just inundated with all the time. And are they right? Is the inflation rate over? Do we have an economic slowdown? And inflation over the next two years goes down to... I- Of course it could happen, but it's not happening. (laughs) There is no slowdown. Hard or soft, there is no slowdown. And I, I, I I just, you know, feel like I'm taking crazy pills. You know, I just thought that's the Mugabe thing. I just, I talk in memes these days, but I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills.
2: Anyway. what do you think the Fed does like in this situation? Because like, like you said, I mean, this is kind of a no landing situation you're talking about, but we are in an election year. There's going to be pressure to get rates down. You know, what do you think? I mean, the market's pricing in all kinds of cuts. I and mean, what, what do you think the what, Fed does?
3: So wait, 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 wait. So, 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 let's, let's go back there. Pressure to put rates down. Pressure to do what? To, to cut rates to, for, for what, for what reason? Yeah, well. well I, uh, I'm not picking on you. I'm not no, no, no. Yeah, no. It's the th- point.
2: I would assume, yeah. I mean, obviously, people in, in every parts of their lives, you know, are affected by interest rates, and I would think politicians would want to see interest rates as low as they could. I mean, whether it be mortgage rates or whatever it is, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I would think that pressure gets through to the Fed.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, who's really pressured by higher interest rates? People with money, right? So, so, so Bill Ackman, you know, to use our favorite guy, right? In his hour-long CNBC thing the other day, he said, "Oh yeah, the Fed's got to cut." Because, you know, if the Fed doesn't cut, it's going to cause a recession. It's going to cause a recession. It's like, again, recession, slowdown. What slowdown? What are you talking about? But that's the story. So you ask, what is the Fed going to do? Yeah, they're going to cut. They're going to cut. You know, whether there's a slowdown or not, and there ain't, and there's not. Right now, there's not. There's no slowdown. There's no sign of a slowdown. All the signs are, we're accelerating. There's no slowdown. And yet, if you say it enough, you say, yeah, yeah, yeah we got to cut. We got to cut. Don't want don't to have that slowdown. And so that's, that's where we are, Jack. That's where we are, man. So yeah, yeah of course the Fed's going to cut. Yeah. Not because they have to, not because there's actually a slowdown, but because that's the story.
2: As I'll let, um, all the way down. I'll let Matt get us to the next section here, but, uh, this is something we should do an episode on at some point, because there's so much nuance to all this, to what's going on just with inflation in general and the narrative world with inflation. I mean, you, I was going to get into some charts you've shown from the wall street journal that we can get into. So at some point we should do, yeah. this as our big story. Cause there's so much I'd to love talk about that. here.
3: Yeah. I wrote a note on it last week. So people can check out the note. Um, there is a lot of nuance to it, Jack. And on the other hand, there's no nuance to it at all. <laughs> which is why it's a great topic for us to talk about.
2: So Matt, uh, I, I kind of know in advance here what, what the topic we're going to talk about is. Um, but, but first I wanted to reference something you did recently because I thought it was really, really great. You were on the, uh, the Life Design Plus podcast with Justin Costelli um, and, and you were talking about the topic of creativity. And so you, you talked for basically an hour about creativity. And for somebody who, and I guess I'm not allowed to say this because you said in the podcast, you're not allowed to say this, but uh, I'm not the most creative person. But, but for me, it was a really good learning experience. But the other thing that was great for me is you asked Justin several times throughout the podcast if he knew who somebody was. And in most cases, he did not, which made me feel so much better about myself because constantly on this podcast, you were asking me if I know about somebody and I don't. But the the great part about what's going to happen today is you are going to ask me about somebody that I do know who it is. So I'm very excited. You don't have to ask me about it, but I am very excited. We're going to talk about somebody here who all of us know very well.
1: So so easier than Rick Rubin is asking if you know Martin Luther King Jr., I hope, right?
2: Yes, I would say so. So Absolutely
1: and i'll i'll plug this to the ben your your note what's the name of the birmingham note
3: letter from a birmingham museum
1: martin luther king day when we're recording this if you have not read ben's note letter from a birmingham M- museum um please take the time to do that today thanks matt appreciate it uh, one of my favorites uh i want to talk about this and i didn't expect it to be such a focal point of this episode but this idea that movements require leaders and their people to feel connectivity and we talk about that with like political entrepreneurs and everything else but that that connectivity between the leader and and the the movement the people in the audience you can't fake that it's something you have to feel and ben you kept bringing up this word authentically uh and authenticity which the whole subject of that conversation that jack mentioned before with justin costelli so when we see the leader in the movement get disconnected or off the page, that's when it devolves into muck. It's the mudslinging of plagiarism and Claudine Gay and everything else. But when we, when we feel the connection, when everyone's on the same page and it's moving forward, that's when magic happens. The draft version of the famous "I Have a Dream" speech, uh, that, or at least from the day that it happened. Here, Jack. Here's your trivia for today. Do you know what was not in? the draft version of the speech the day Martin Luther gave the I Have a Dream speech.
2: was It was not I Have a Dream, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was nowhere in it.
1: This is a piece of history that it's not totally forgotten. There's, there's a whole book on this thing, but it's the idea that it wasn't actually in the speech. And what's really important is it, it wasn't totally improvised, but the written conclusion intended for that day was about creative dissatisfaction. Martin Luther King was supposed to get up there and basically call on the attendees to return to their hometowns dissatisfied with the status of the civil rights movement to do more but when he takes the stage that day it doesn't go to creative dissatisfaction and that's because he's traveling with this entourage this people these people who know him and mahalia jackson directly behind him feels so she's a gospel singer and she feels the energy of the room as he's halfway through that speech And she yells out this now famous expression, tell him about the dream, Mark. And that's what gets him started. So this break from the prepared speech to tell him about the dream, the people who know the authentic connectivity between the people and the followers and those who understand the magic of the message is the whole reason we get this speech. Not just Martin Luther King by himself. Yes, he wrote it. Yes, he had these ideas. Yes, he had it. Mahalia wasn't heckling him. There was no shitposting. This was not fake. This was genuine magic from felt connectivity with a common purpose for the better. And if that's not a sense of spirituality on this day, on the importance of supporting our people and being a positive contributing member of a group, I don't know what is. And I think about that story every single Martin Luther King day. Amen, Matt. That's beautiful. That was awesome. So I think it's time for a summary, guys. No, I, it is. You've I always got, got, got notes. notes. I've got notes. So Ben, you really struck me with this. This, these, the negative labels of plagiarism and how it's it's easier to demonize and prove somebody's anti-Semitic th- than it is, or it's it's hard to do that, but it's easier to prove that somebody's a plagiarist, and that's really interesting. A new weapon against institutions, a new reformation of education is upon us. And this plagiarism thing's right at the middle. I I hadn't quite thought of it that way before. Bitcoin TM uh, also once a symbol of reform, another label that now is just another table in this Wall Street casino. If it's just another funnel for flows, one of the best defenses we have still is to be anti-grumpy. We have to embrace fun. We made the point about how the Pokemon cards and NFTs, like that's where the actual authenticity is happening, not just in the Wall Street casino. That's a weird counter lesson from the ETF for Bitcoin. We talked about carried interest, how neither party wants to kill it because, well, let's face it. If you have a business thing that makes money and that money then turns into a political contribution because it serves serves the people in power, it's not going to go away. Seeing carried interest as another label, kind of like plagiarism, kind of like Bitcoin TM, is really important here to pick up on the narrative value of these words. Jack, your points on hard landing, the notes I made to myself was, uh, you know, this is, it's, it's not hard ice cream, it's not soft serve ice cream, It is ice cream and ice cream. You scream. We all scream for economy. And that's what it feels like right now. This is just the story of the economy right now is the story of ice cream and the story of all the children screaming at once for the thing that they want. Give us rate cuts. And I'll end on this authentic connectivity, just like the Martin Luther King story, just like Mahalia Jackson saying to tell them about the, tell them about the dream. We talked in the uh, the interview that I did with Justin about the etymology of authenticity and authentic. And the idea is to be self-genuine or be genuine to yourself. That's what authentic actually translates to. And when we talk about community and whether we're talking about what's missing at these colleges or missing in politics right now, it's that be genuine to yourself, be genuine genuine to your communities and I think that's a dream that we all share here on Breaking News. Well done as always, Matt. Thanks for joining me, guys. Like, follow, subscribe, all the things. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching Breaking News so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at practicalquant on Twitter Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com cultishcreative.com and at cultishcreative on Twitter